you are visiting with us, we have been going through the letter of 1 Corinthians for, uh, oh, almost a year now. We started last September, and uh, we take a couple of breaks here and there, and we've been off for the last uh, month, but we're going to go back in today, uh, right where we left off in chapter 11. And so if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open, there, open them there. By the way, if you didn't bring a Bible, we always try to have some Bibles in the chairs in front of you. And I uh, encourage you to help yourself to one of those. If you don't have a Bible at home, uh, we would love for you to just take that home with you. We would love for you to have a Bible in your home that you can refer to often, that you can read daily. And so help yourself. Um, we want you to have that. Well, as a family, we just, uh, just thought about this this week. I didn't even, didn't even um, catch my mind earlier, but we just hit the five-year mark since we moved to Wetaskiwin. And we became part of uh, Wetaskiwin Mission Church. And one thing that I've noticed in those five years, uh, noticed many things, but just sort of trying to understand the culture of the church a little bit more, I've noticed that as a church, one of the things that you enjoy and that I have now um, come to enjoy as well is that we love to eat together uh, as a church. And quite often when we eat together, one of the things that we will do is tell everyone to bring food. And then we gather it all and put it all on a couple of tables and the food gets shared so that it makes together one common meal. And we love those times. It's always great food, um, but it's always good just to be together as a church and to be able to talk to one another and to be able to uh, get to know one another and to be together as fellow believers. Um, And that's what we really should be doing. We should desire uh, just being together. And so sometimes we come on Sunday mornings and we sit, but we don't converse. We don't talk to one another and we go our separate ways again and then we come back the following Sunday. But when we have those meals together, it's a good time just to gather together around the table and get to know one another. And we often call those potluck lunches or suppers, and I'm not even sure what that means, what it has to do with pots and luck. Um, I guess maybe the food that comes, I'm not sure what, we're fortunate to have what we have. I don't know what that means. Anyway, some, maybe someday someone can explain the the history behind potlucks to me. But maybe a better name for those would be fellowship meals, a time to be together and to share food with fellow believers. Now, as we're thinking about, let me just play out sort of an imaginary scenario. Suppose that we plan for one of these fellowship meals and we announce um, that it's going to happen, let's say, uh, next Sunday after church. But during the church service, imagine that we start to notice uh, a few people start to leave while the service is still going on. And and then you start to notice that a few more start to trickle out right from that same section where the other ones left. And, And then a few more. And then when the service is over and we all get out, imagine that we notice that all those people that are that that left are already sitting around one table, eating and drinking, back in that, that, that back room off the foyer there. They're, they're laughing and they're having a great time. And, and then we notice that they've already emptied three dishes of the best food. The one with the fried chicken, the one with the marshmallow salad, the marshmallow fruit salad, and the one with the Nanaimo bars. And then... Imagine that you look over and you notice that rather than drinking the church coffee, they've got their own stash of Starbucks 
Not that there's anything wrong with church coffee. Well, how would you react to that? Well, I think you'd be upset. I know I'd be especially upset about the marshmallow fruit salad, because that's one of my favorites. But you'd be thinking, what's with them? What's so special about them? Why should they get to go first? Why should they get all the best food? But the main issue would be that what they did really blurs and, and, and confuses and distorts the purpose of what we call the fellowship meal. The very meal that's supposed to point out our, our commonality and that's supposed to display our willingness to share with each other and to fellowship with each other, well, these people are doing the exact opposite. They're going first. They're hoarding all the food. And, and they don't give a rip about anyone else other than their friends and their own stomachs, their own appetites. Well, it seems like something pretty much like that was happening at the church in the city of Corinth back in the first century. And in Corinth, it seems like this uh, sort of cliquey eating and, and, and drinking was, was done by the wealthy and by the elite and, and that they were leaving out the poor and the, and the not-so-influential. But there was even a bigger issue. In Corinth, this same kind of fellowship meal was also connected to the Lord's Supper, that great ordinance of the, of the church that Christ commanded us to do where we remember our Lord's death. Now, that's a problem. Not only was that kind of thing distorting the picture and the symbol of sharing and fellowship, it was also confusing and distorting and discoloring the picture and the purpose of our Lord's sacrificial uh, and self-giving and sin-bearing death. You see, in that day, what I called the fellowship meal was actually called the love feast. It was a time when the church would get together for a meal, much as we do with our potlucks. But interspersed within that love feast, they would also celebrate the Lord's Supper. Sometimes they would do it in the middle. Sometimes they would, uh, the communion would follow afterwards. If you want to look up a reference to love feast, you'll see a, a reference to it in Jude, verse 12. There's only one chapter in Jude, so Jude, verse 12. And there, Jude, it talks about uh, the shepherds, the, the false teachers abusing the love feasts. But it's the same sort of thing that we read about in 1 Corinthians 11. It, it says there in Jude 12 that they were feeding themselves. And Jude goes on to call them all sorts of bad names. And so you can see that these love feasts were no longer living out their purpose. Instead of being uh, outward focused and, and showing love for brothers and sisters, they became places where, where selfishness and self-indulgence reigned. And that's what was happening in Corinth, too. And that's what made Paul write these words in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 to 34. And so I'm just going to go over the first part of that today. Uh, this section is, is structured right in the middle with this beautiful account of the Lord's Supper, these very familiar words. And we, we read this section a lot when we partake of the remembrance. Usually we try to do it here on the first Sunday of every month. But Paul records the words of that institution there for a purpose. He does it in order to correct what was going on there. And so I'm just going to read up to verse 26 
today, and then we'll cover the, the other section next week. We'll start with the Lord's Supper then and read the section that follows. But if you have your Bibles again, if you have them open there already, uh, find verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 11. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this, But in the following instructions, in the following instructions I do not commend you. Remember, he had earlier commended them in, in verse 2. But in these instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. By the way, he never gets to the second place. But in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you might be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord that sorry, for I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there we see those great words that remind us of the purpose of the Lord's Supper. It, it points unmistakably and, and obviously to the love of the Father toward sinners in the person of Jesus Christ. And so the Lord's Supper is a, is a powerful and a very clear display, a picture of gospel realities. But it's beautiful, and, and it displays the gospel only when it's done properly and when it's done with the, with the right motives and the right attitudes. But if it's done improperly, it actually has the opposite effect. It also paints a picture. But it distorts the exact thing that it's supposed to remind us of. And when it does that, it confuses the gospel. It makes the gospel actually worse. We could say it makes the gospel meaningless, but it's actually worse than that. Making it meaningless makes, just means that it sort of neutralizes the picture. But Paul says it actually discolors and distorts the picture. It harms the picture of the gospel. It harms the church. It does harm to the gospel, or for the cause, to the cause of the gospel, for the unbelieving, the, uh, the unbelieving but watching world. In the words of verse 17, it makes it worse. When you come together, it says, there it is not for the better, but for the worse. That's a strong indictment. And it should be. When the church comes together, it ought to reflect Christ. Uh, the coming together of the church ought to reflect his life. The com coming together of the church ought to affect his, his accomplishments. To actually do harm to Christ's accomplishments should draw a strong rebuke. We would expect nothing less. And that's what Paul does here. And so we have to ask next, what's the church doing that's so bad? What, what is it that's causing the confusion. What is the for the worse? 
Well, he's about to tell them. Look at verse 18. For, and here's, well, this is a, that's purpose coming up now. For, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And so there's the issue. It has to do with when they come together as a church. And when they come together, there are divisions. Doesn't that statement all by itself sort of strike you as odd? You have two words, together and divisions. And therein lies the problem. They aren't really coming together. They're coming divided. Uh, They might be together in the same room, but they're not together in spirit. And so there's there's a disconnect there, both figuratively and literally. It's confusing. And that's Paul's point. God designed the whole concept of of coming together as a church to to display the picture, to display the fact that he sent Jesus Christ to bring people together, people who otherwise might have very little in common, except for one thing, one huge thing, one life-changing thing, which is our common salvation. And you see this concept all over the New Testament. The word together is about as important as a word as there is when we talk about the church. It's what makes the church such a beautiful uh, creation and gift from our Lord. When we become Christians, we are brought together with God, through Christ, with other believers. Other people who have been saved. Ephesians 2.5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. But later in that same chapter, based on that togetherness, that union with Christ that we we now have, God also brings together Jews and Gentiles into one body. And it says later in Ephesians 2, verse 19. Ephesians 2, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, listen now, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built, here it is again, together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Notice you have the whole trinity involved in this bringing together there. Because we are joined to Christ, we are joined now to fellow believers. That's what being a Christian is. It's being part of a church. And that's why the New Testament is filled with commands and how we ought to conduct ourselves towards one another. You have those words, one another, all over the place. There's a fundamental unity that has been purchased through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so when the church first started, you read things like this in Acts 2.44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And so even in first church there in Acts, in this Jerusalem church, even though they all came from different walks of life, their common belief brought about a common togetherness. And it demonstrated itself in practical ways. Look at verse 45 of of Acts chapter 2. And they were selling their possessions and belonging... uh, and, and distributing the proceeds to all, sorry, as they had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, and having favor with all the people. Just note there the willingness to share 
and the resulting joy and, and gladness and praise. They were truly one body. They were naturally and, and, and joyfully living out the supernatural togetherness that had been accomplished by God through Jesus. This is the church functioning according to God's intended design for his people, for his covenant community. And it's a beautiful thing. But fast forward to Corinth. Not too many years later, actually. Under Paul's ministry, a church had started there, too. But sometime after Paul left, things had obviously started to go sideways. And, and Paul hears a report about it. And this is what he writes to them in order to correct them and to hopefully just turn them back on the right track. Listen, we, we always need reminders. Left to ourselves, we have a tendency to stumble and to drift. And when we drift and when we lose our focus, we seem to take on the philosophies of the world and the culture instead. And this is true even when it comes to the concept of togetherness, the togetherness and the unity that was purchased through the costly blood of our Savior. Our interests have become so divided that the church somehow takes on a, a, a sort of a supplementary place on the totem pole of our priorities. And so when we talk about coming together, other things seem to join the church in the list of priorities. And so church just sort of assumes its place in a list somewhere mixed together with leisure, even time with family, a good thing, work. It's seen as important, yes, but it's just sort of in the mix somewhere. Now, it used to be that church, at least on Sunday mornings, was a priority. Uh, some, some people might miss the, the midweek meeting or the Sunday night service, but never Sunday morning. But now, even Sunday morning is just there as one of the options. Now, I realize I'm talking to the choir here because you're all here today. Uh, but sometimes... The, the Sunday morning service is easily put aside if something else comes up, if something better comes up. I've read some things lately that say if people at attend church two Sundays a month, they now consider themselves to be regular church attenders. Now that's come a long way from Acts 2, being together day by day, hasn't it? Even the whole concept of the church community has assumed a secondary place. And what's moved ahead to it, ahead of it? is people's social media community. When we want to share something with people, we just throw it up on the computer. And the amazing thing is that it gets instant responses, lots of them. Only they sympathize with you and they encourage you by means of a keypad. There are words, but there's no voice. There's no emotion. There's no face. You know, unless they have their, their face on the avatar there somewhere. But again, it's a far cry from Acts 2, where it says, and all who believed were together. They were in the same locale. They weren't in this, just in the same cyberspace. So like I said, we need reminders. And there's probably no more poignant and powerful reminder than the Lord's Supper. And that was a natural bridge for Paul here in 1 Corinthians 11, because the divisions had to do with eating and drinking. You see what was going on there down in verse 21. For in, eating and, or for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another goes drunk. 
So there you have the scenario I asked you to imagine at the beginning. You've got people or, or factions starting to eat before everyone's there. And it was probably the rich, the elite, because they were more of the, the sort of the white-collar types. They were a little bit more flexible, and this probably happened during the weekdays. They were a little bit more flexible and could get there ahead of time. It's sort of like getting off early on Friday afternoon for a golf game or something like that. It's only certain people who can do that, right? The poor and the slaves didn't have that flexibility. They had to work, and so they could barely get there on time. And the issue is that these elite only cared about who? Themselves. Each one goes ahead with his own meal. They didn't wait. And so all of a sudden, you've got one group sitting there pigging out. And when the other group shows up, all the food's gone. They get nothing. One has nothing, and the other one is drunk. And so back in verse 20, Paul says, when you come together, this isn't the Lord's Supper that you're eating. He just means there that it's impossible to connect that kind of behavior with the Lord's Supper, of all things. It confuses the same picture it was intended to portray. And then Paul lets them have it with some rapid-fire rhetorical questions there, starting in verse 22. What? Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? And the questioning stops. He says, no, I will not. He's saying, if you're going to mess things up like this, uh, or mess up this fellowship meal like that, then go and do it somewhere else. Do it at home. Don't use the church of God, of all things, to do it. Now, we have children at the age when they sit around the table, and as soon as we're done praying, they just want to grab everything first, right? They, they, they feel like if they, or it seems to anyways, that they, they feel like if they don't get it first, they're not going to get any. I mean, we got four boys around the table, so that could be a possibility. But, but you expect it in that kind of setting, don't you? And you, you, you slowly try to teach them to, to put others first. But these people in Corinth were behaving just like that, like children, at the church. Paul says, don't do it when you come together as a church. There's nothing together about doing that kind of stuff. You're actually despising the church of God, and you're humil- humiliating the poor. In other words, you're messing up the whole picture of what Jesus died for. It's like taking a picture and just scrawling all over it. That kind of behavior is shameful to the church, confusing to the community, and it ultimately despises God. They were creating divisions based on social classes. They were leaving certain people out while they were gorging themselves. And that kind of stuff is totally incompatible with what the church is supposed to point to. The church that God created and designed brings together. It it, it doesn't divide on any lines. It brings together slave and free. It brings together rich and poor. It brings together male and female. It brings together black and white. It brings together blue collar and white collar. And so their actions were incompatible with what God designed the church to be. And then leaving the poor out besides that is also incompatible with what Christ did. After all, what did Jesus do in becoming a man? He willingly became what? Poor. He humbled himself. Philippians 2 says, even though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not count equality with God a a claim or a status to claim or, or a right to assert. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And eventually, 
dying on a cross. And not only was Christ poor, or did Christ make himself poor, all of us who are Christians are poor, aren't we? Abjectly poor when it comes to spiritual resources. We got nothing. We have nothing. We just sang about that, didn't we? We have nothing to offer God in order to, to, to buy a standing before God. Jesus paid it all. Our only earnings separate us from God and lead to death. All have sinned. And the wages, there's again those financial words, the wages of sin is death. We were poor. Desperately poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But in a wonderful coming together of Christ's poverty and ours, when Christ died, he took upon himself our spiritual poverty. And he gave us his spiritual riches. That's the kicker of it all. He gave us his sinless life. And if we turn away from our sins and we rely on Jesus' perfect life alone, then Jesus earns for us a right standing before God. He purchases our redemption. Jesus paid it all. It's a beautiful picture. And so to come together now as a church to eat and drink and then to leave out the poor? Well, that's, it's frankly insane. It's absurd. It despises the church of God, in Paul's words. It's, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. It's anything but. What ought to happen when they came together is that they're coming together should picture the fact that they are one body of Christ, that they are, that they are together. They're coming together should point to the wonderful unity that, that, that God has created in bringing different people together into one body that is unified toward one purpose and one mind. And there's no perf- more perfect reminder of that than the Lord's Supper. Before we look at that, just a couple of takeaways from that first section. It, it's a clear reminder, through warning, to be thinking of each other when we come together. How can you serve the people around you? How can you uh, share with the people around you? Look, look around you in the row in front of you, or, or, or maybe in the section beside you. Is there someone that you can talk to, maybe someone that, that you've seen every week, but you've never really had a chance to get to know and to encourage? Is there someone that's sitting by himself or, or herself? Is there someone with whom you would otherwise have nothing in common except your common faith that you could just get to know a little bit better? Ask them some questions about their life, how things are going. The Corinthians were only thinking of themselves. They were only thinking of satisfying their stomachs. They only wanted to hang around people that were the same as them. So I encourage you to make an effort to consider other people in the church, whatever form that may take. So this is a pretty stern... Wow, that changed, didn't it? So this is a pretty stern rebuke from Paul. But now he turns to the Lord's Supper to remind these people of what they ought to be like. This is a a positive but pointed corrective by way of reminder. This would point them very obviously to the purpose for coming together and to what should happen when they come together. Look again at verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, that very terrible night when he was betrayed, took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. These are, these are such familiar words. They're beautiful words. Uh, like I said before, we recite this or, or the gospel accounts of the Lord's Supper every time we celebrate communion. But I just want to pick out a couple of words and concepts here that counter what was happening there in Corinth. These words happened in a context. When we celebrate this meal, it reminds us of what ought to happen when we come together. They had connected the, the Lord's Supper there with a love feast, but we saw it became anything but loving. One commentator says that what happened in Corinth, rather than being a love feast, was a travesty of love. While the Lord's Supper is an act of supreme love by God towards sinful people at the cost of his Son. Notice the words of Jesus there. This is my body which is for you. Jesus gave himself for sinners. He gave up his body to death, absorbing the Father's a just wrath against your sin and absorbing the just penalty for your sin. My body for you. And so we remember who Jesus is. He is our sin-bearing Savior and substitute. But second, when it says for you, you can't see this in, in, in your Bibles, but the you there is plural. He gave his body for you all. For the church, uh, for all those that would repent and believe. It's, it's inclusive. He, he dies for us all, for all those who are members of his community, for all those who are his children. And all his children are included at the table. And that should have reminded the Corinthians, and it reminds us that God doesn't pick and choose who gets to eat and drink. He doesn't divide by social status. He doesn't in- include some Christians and exclude others. It's not about being first and last. It's about coming together because God has brought us all together. Praise God. He he unites us all into one body. And so in many ways, when we eat the Lord's Supper, we need to remember that this meal is not just about you and Jesus. It is that, but it's not just that. It points to all of us being part of one body. And so in our church, we try to symbolize that by all eating and drinking at the same time. And so we remember who Jesus is as the one who gives us a substitutionary atonement. We're reminded of our unity as God's children in the church of God, but we also celebrate what Jesus has done. When we drink from the cup, it's a reminder of the new covenant in my blood. Like I read from Hebrews 8, it's a new and better covenant than the old one. The old one was based on, uh, on the obedience and the disobedience of God's people. But this new one is based on the obedience of Jesus Christ alone. It's based not on what we do or don't do, but on what Jesus has already done by shedding his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. This is an amazing truth. When you put your faith in Jesus, all of your sins were forgiven. The ones that you committed yesterday, the ones that you committed 30 years ago, the ones that you will even commit this afternoon and tomorrow, they were washed clean. They were canceled out by the blood of Christ. 
And finally, in verse 26, Paul drives home his point to these self-indulgent Corinthians by saying that eating and drinking, however you do it, always communicates something. And what it's supposed to communicate is the Lord's death until he comes. So here's the deal. The church can either confuse or distort the meaning of Christ's death by eating and drinking selfishly, or it can wonderfully liven up the picture through, the eating and, through eating and drinking properly rather than improperly. And you see between the original Lord's Supper there in the upper room, so you've got the original Lord's Supper on which this is based, back in the upper room there, Jesus and his disciples, and then you have the Lord's second coming. Well, the church is what God uses to reflect and to picture what he has done in the meantime. The church is designed to reflect the gospel in the way we treat each other and in the way that we point to the accomplishments of Jesus. This is a big responsibility for us. Let's work to enhance the picture, not to distort it. How can we do that? When we come together to eat and drink, or whenever we come together at all, let's be careful to think properly of Jesus and to reflect Jesus and what he has done. And let's be careful to think properly about each other. Let's be quick to express our unity. Let's be quick to sacrifice for the good of each other. Let's be quick to serve each other. Let's be quick to love each other. Let's be quick to share with each other. Let's bow together in prayer. Our God, we thank you so much for your speaking this morning to us. We thank you for your voice which has come to us through your word. And we thank you also for for visible reminders of your kindness, of your plan of salvation through Christ. And Lord, we saw visible reminders in, in the wedding yesterday. And we see visible reminders through the Lord's Supper. Thank you for helping us consider the unity that is ours as a church. Lord, we pray that, uh, that we would do all to reflect what you have accomplished for us as one body. Help us to be other-centered, just as Christ was. Help us to love, just as Christ loved. Help us to forgive, just as Christ forgave. Help us to humble ourselves, just as Christ humbled himself. Help us to share our riches, just as Christ shared his riches with us. We just pray that you would help us to, to, to think about the agonies of the cross as we sang, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. But help us also to think of the wonderful accomplishments of the cross. Oh, the wonderful cross. How we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.